Hey everyone, before we get to today's content, I wanted to tell you about a brand new podcast from the 11FS Podcast Network, the FinTech Marketing Podcast hosted by me, Eric Fulweiler, Chief Marketing Officer of 11FS. Over the last couple months, I've been speaking to heads of marketing from the world's leading FinTech and financial service brands, Monzo, Revolut, MasterCard, Zero, Starling, Lemonade, and many more. We heard their insights and ideas on how they build brand and drive growth for their businesses, and now we can bring them to you. So if you're into FinTech, FS, marketing, which I assume you are, uh, please check out our brand new podcast. Search for FinTech Marketing Podcast on any podcast platform. Subscribe, share, leave us a review, and please do let us know your thoughts. Appreciate the support. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer and today, as with many shows in recent times, we're going to be talking about coronavirus and specifically its impact on the financial service industry as a whole. Business as usual, unfortunately, is over. The COVID-19 pandemic has created an immediate operational crisis in financial services firms that have ignored the digital imperative. In the medium to long term, it will accelerate the shift to digital, hastening the move from products to services and permanently reshaping the financial services industry. We want to dig into the short, medium and long term implications to give you guys an insight into how we're thinking about this and how we see it playing out over this time. And to do so, I'm joined by some of my expert colleagues at 11FS. Today, we have Sarah Kachansky. How's it going, Sarah? It's good. It's good. The the sun is shining. I know we're all inside, but at least the sun is shining outside, isn't it? I was going to say that, but then I think I've said that on every podcast I've recorded in the last two weeks. So I thought I would try and, you know, avoid sounding overly British and bringing the weather up before we talk about anything else today. But um, you did it for me. So <laughs> it is. It's but a beautiful day. It's, it's the, the tiny silver linings at that stage, isn't it? So uh, I'm also joined by Simon Taylor. How's it going, Simon? Yeah, really well, sir. It's, it feels weird. I feel like I'm in my own like weird little big brother house all to itself, like a weird experiment, but without the hidden cameras and without any of the drama. So good to be on a podcast. How are you doing? Very, very good. It's um, uh, funny, funny times, I have to say, with everything that's going on. Uh, last but no means least, though, we have our Director of Research. Making his FinTech Insider debut, we have Mr. Benjamin Enser. How's it going, Benjamin? Very good. Thank you, David. It's uh, exciting to be on my first podcast. It is. I mean, strange times to be doing it all remotely from our houses. But uh, um, so I think if we um, get into the research that the the research team have been really uh, looking at, I mean, you guys have been digging deep into what you think the impact will be. Um, I think for for anybody who wants to sort of head over now and and get that full scope of of what you guys have been doing, there's a really interesting slide share deck that uh, you've put out, haven't you, to to kind of give an overview of the the thinking that you guys have been doing over the last couple of weeks. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Benjamin? Yes. So what we've been doing is we've been talking to a lot of companies about how the crisis is affecting them. And we've been looking at what companies have been doing both here in the UK and uh, more widely around the world. And then trying to think through what are the short-term, medium-term and long-term implications. Um, the short-term implications are very obvious and, and we've talked about some of them before. Um, but as you start thinking about the longer-term implications, there are some really big things that are going to change in the industry. 
Sure is. Uh, the, uh, the the normal is, uh, is definitely sort of changing, isn't it, dramatically. If you guys at this stage uh, listening to this want to uh, get that full report, if you head over to info.11fs.com forward slash COVID-19, you can get all of those insights that Benjamin and Sarah and everybody in the research team has been working on. That's info.11fs.com forward slash COVID-19. So for today's show, we're going to be digging into all of the findings of those reports um, and starting with the reaction or short-term impact of the virus. So I think, guys, if we maybe start there, um, I think it's probably quite you know, fair to say that the economies from a, a global perspective is pretty much going into reverse, right? The predictions that we were seeing in terms of growth uh, for this year, uh, if anything, are you know 10 or 11 times uh, the opposite direction, unfortunately. So, I mean, what do you see the the, the most significant short-term impacts being for everybody? I think for consumers um, and households, there's a sudden loss of income for, you know, towards a third of house- households. Um, so you've got acute financial worries. Plus, of course, you've got lots of people who've got acute health worries as well. So there's deep anxiety for consumers. Lots of businesses are in exactly the same place, sudden loss of income, being shut down by government lockdowns and so on. So huge amounts of anxiety and short-term cash crisis for towards a third of businesses and consumers. And it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, obviously, different industries are affected so dramatically differently. Uh, you know, frontline uh, services industries, the uh, retail industries, the uh, travel industries, airline industries. Uh, these guys kind of felt the impact most when lockdown happened. Uh, I mean, if you're a flight attendant or a pilot, there's no work from home policy that uh, will cover you for or technology that can kind of resolve those situations. So different sectors, are, like you say, are uh, affected so dramatically differently. And I think, I mean, I'd say globally, we've seen the governments react similarly. Uh, you know, the the protection of um, of jobs really being the thing that most governments seem to be spending most of their time thinking about right now. Um, Sarah, what, what, have, what have you seen? What are the trends you're sort of picking up? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, governments are scrambling to react. And I think that that's a lot to do with it. There really is no precedent for this. Um, I heard a fantastic quote earlier where somebody said, you know, normally with a disaster or a catastrophe, you work backwards. So there's an earthquake, there's a flood, uh, a tornado, a crop fails. It happens. And then you kind of work backwards and you try and remedy that. But the problem with this situation is not only is there no precedent in plans, so we didn't have a pandemic plan, or at least not many places had one that I can see anyway, um, and le- certainly in the Western world over in Asia, it's slightly different. Um, but we're getting deeper and deeper in. So every time you make a decision, you don't know if, as a government, that decision is going to have to pivot again in two weeks because you don't know what the situation will be in two weeks' time. Um, and I think that is really, you know, partly why this is having such a huge impact on so many sectors is that it is it's continuous dominoes at the moment, and we don't know when we're going to reach the end of the pack. That's not too many metaphors. Um, so I think, as you say, most governments have have started to try and, you know, the first thing is job security, because if you've got job security, then people have got money. If people have got money, then they can buy food. You know, if they can eat, then they can keep working and then they're probably healthier. Um, but I think there's still a lot more to be done, um, particularly from governments as they get to grips with this, um, when we get into the nitty gritty of which industries should receive what kind of support, how and where, you know, that that's a long way down the path. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I completely agree with you. When you look at uh, anything, you know, uh, uh, some element of crisis, if it was a, a tornado, then, you know, the winds would have dissipated by now and we would be dealing with the fallout, wouldn't we? Um, but it, as you say, it's it's almost the the unended nature of actually when this first phase, which, you know, is is all to do with the, you know, the the, the pandemic and the, the disease, you know, the virus, when will that actually subside for people to be able to kind of really deal with the, uh, deal with the issues at hand, really. So, I mean, Simon, as is, is you, do you anything above that to to kind of add? Yeah, so I think a lot of people had business continuity plans, and governments, in theory, had pandemic plans, but they hadn't been tested to this scale before. I mean, it was never the case that you had to shut down the entire economy for months at a time and then figure out how to warm up the economy again. So now, financial services are faced with mass unemployment and rising debt overwhelming loan applications, credit lines being really, really stretched. And all of that has to happen without face-to-face contact. And all of that has to happen whilst potentially um, most of the offshore call centers are shut down as well. So this is a, a really unprecedented time. And the there are different levels of response. You know, organizations that um, were already digital may have responded better to some other folks, but the, those immediate implications, that shock um, has definitely been felt uh, by financial services quite heavily. Mm. And, and I know, um, I mean, in the nicest possible way, uh, as I mean, as all of us have said, I mean, the governments are kind of making it up as they go along. And I don't mean that in any derogatory sense against what they're doing because nobody has a clue what to actually do about this and um, but it does feel like there, there must be some element uh because of the the sort of drip feeding nature of the a new scheme here a change to furlough there uh, you know an investment potential here um it does feel like they're doing a lot to try and make sure that particularly as you say sarah in this first phase um that they're keeping as many lights on as they can because i guess what comes next uh, might really uh, you know put all of this into a uh, uh, into sort of proportion mightn't it yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think um, keeping the lights on, you know, for now, you know, the, the other option is possibly to go full, you know, we'll just shut everything down, we'll stop everything working, we'll, you know, focus on the short term effect, but that just sets you up for bigger and larger problems further down the road, you know, aside from the immediate impact of like people losing their jobs, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think the other thing to look at there is, as, as Simon mentioned, is that, um, you know, keeping the lights on in small companies is fine, but what are we going to do about, you know, global, the, the global financial infrastructure? infrastructure. You know, nothing we've done before will work this time, guys. We can't, you know, drop interest rates and encourage people to go out and spend. It's it's just not going to happen, partly because as a government, you've told them not to leave their house. So, you know, the the bigger picture beyond, you know, keeping small businesses up and running, keeping people healthy is how does the global financial infrastructure respond to this in such a way that we develop we, we adapt old instruments, we develop new instruments, you know, that, that will put us in a, a good place for should the second wave happen, for deaths get worse, et cetera, et cetera. So whilst that initial phase has been, you know, lights on, the next phase is going to have to be bigger, I think, um, and broader than just the, the SMEs in the X country you're in. Yeah, no, I agree. Like I say, it's, it is a, uh, there is no limit to the impact of what is happening, is there? So, I mean, what what are the implications of this then, Benjamin? What what is the uh, and I think particularly you know focusing into to financial services now. I mean we're we're all affected by this as 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 human beings. We've all got you know family members who are impacted. We've got friends who are being impacted. But if we zoom in a little bit on financial services, um, what what does this mean for for financial services particularly? So the short term impact, which we've 
sort of seen already has been a huge operational crisis, uh, particularly for banks and insurance companies that have been inundated with phone calls from anxious customers seeking to you know, renegotiate uh, interest payments, seeking to claim on insurance policies, um, seeking to defer all sorts of um, other payments, um, and also seeking to borrow. So one of the biggest challenges within banks is at the very time you can see this massive crisis coming, you've got all of your corporate customers drawing down their credit lines. You've got customers starting to max out on credit cards. So there's a massive credit crisis already coming um, as uh, customers try and borrow money. At the very same time, you've got this huge operational crisis, as Simon was saying, because suddenly your contact centers have closed down, particularly if you'd outsourced to the Philippines or India, where they've had massive lockdowns. Um, even if you hadn't done that, you probably didn't have the work from home policies, you probably didn't have the secure remote access, you probably don't have all of your employees having laptops even, or Wi-Fi or somewhere comfortable to work at home and so on. So you've got massive operational uh, consequences. And that's even assuming that none of your employees have actually been taken ill, which is probably not a safe assumption. So huge sort of psychological and operational consequences for financial services just in the short term. Yeah, I mean, normal working patterns from a productivity perspective, given all of the schools are uh, are now off, you know, all bets are off, aren't they, in terms of actually how the, the structure of uh, life and work balance kind of fits in into that, doesn't it? But I mean, Simon, like, like uh, Benjamin was saying there, I mean, there are there are some really interesting sort of symptoms of this or problems that are sort of manifesting themselves, isn't there? Because immediately when you start getting into people needing more money, but not being able to trundle into a branch to actually, you know, talk to somebody or re- receive that, it's sort of showing signs of stress within the existing systems where people or paper was bridging them, isn't it? Yeah, completely. And I think that's exactly it. it. It was people on paper that were bridging the gaps and making things sort of work. And those gaps are now chasms. And getting over that is really, really hard. It's interesting that uh, historically, uh, a process was a cost to be managed, but it's sort of work and the organization made money. Um, a contact center was a cost to be you know, reduced. Technology infrastructure was a cost to be reduced, and it was really about efficiency. But actually, what we've seen is tech investment can be as much about resilience as it is, and, and operational change can be about resilience. And organizations have talked a good game about resilience with disaster recovery planning and so on. But this isn't an earthquake hitting a data center. This is you can't use your analog processes. So what are the operating models? What are the tech models that you're going to need to be able to deal with this? And we've seen a lot of digital businesses being able to, in two days, just entirely move remotely because they had all of those processes for resilience built in. A lot of the older businesses have really struggled. Now, that's not to say they haven't done amazing things for customers in a short space of time. Let's credit where it's due. And it's got to be really hard to be there right now. But I think the macro thing there of that shift from uh efficiency in your cost structure and trying to reduce the cost to start to think about how can digital processes, digital tech actually make us resilient to these kind of shocks and reduce cost. And I think that's what you always say, David, isn't it? It's not an or, it's an and. Completely agree. I mean, I mean, many banks are, are taking quite a lot of steps at this stage though, Sarah, aren't they? To, to sort of uh, lean into this a little bit because I mean, as, as Simon says, you know, many people, both for their employees and actually for their customers, uh, are doing everything they can. Um, but how can banks actually sort of cope with this this situation? 
Yeah, so it's been really interesting. We've seen a variety of reactions. Um, we've seen, you know, we did see one bank in the UK just go, okay, well, we're not doing anything on weekends anymore, um, which was not necessarily the the best approach, shall we say. Um, we've also seen other banks, you know, there was an example in the UK of a bank that managed to get, um, you know, a chatbot service up and running within seven days. We've also seen a bank that's actually managed to implement um, a chat service into its app, uh, you know, since this whole thing started from front to finish. Now, those are, um, are, are small services. They are sort of triaging services, but they can make a big difference if they enable you to, to handle, you know, to siphon off a portion of those customer queries, to siphon off a portion of those those, those customer questions um, and, and, you know, relieve some of that pressure on your contact centers. Um, outside of that, uh, you know, it's been really interesting to see how banks have suddenly realized um that VPNs are not necessarily the solution to working from home um, when they've realized that they only can provide VPN access for sort of 150 people and they've got 2,500 they need to get working from home and how to do that securely. Um, I will say that I know a couple of consultants who um, work in the space, you know, the remote working space and the future of workspace, and they haven't lost their jobs. They're doing very, very well right now. Um, because there's a lot of uh, a lot of looking towards new new types of technology to to help people working from home, um, you know, going back to that kind of customer support element, we've seen um, this interesting move towards uh, live chat. So um, rather than having somebody call you up, the, you, the phone numbers go offline. Everybody sits at home, um, and you're set up with a me- an messaging interface. Not only does that mean people can more securely work from home because everything's being routed through a channel, it's also being recorded, um, but it also means that um, people wait time don't become so much of a problem we do know that there's a lot of if you're hanging around on the phone it's much more frustrating than if you send a message and you get a message ping back a couple of hours later because you've gotten on with your day in the middle um those are just a a few things um obviously there's a a huge amount of other things that being looked at partnerships with third parties you know how can we use somebody else particularly maybe a smaller startup or a fintech who's got a technology that enables us to do things like get a loan application process up and running in in you know days there are companies that offer that as a service. You know, they, they literally do white label loan application processes. That's what they do. Um, and I think we're starting to see, uh, well, I'm optimistic that we're starting to see some of the larger organizations explore those because they don't have a choice anymore. They know they can't do it themselves. So what do we do now? And they're starting to look around. That said, it's still very early days on that side. Yeah, I think it's uh, it isn't that an interesting point because it's, you know, so many organizations have been, exploring these things and exploring to Simon to your point the the limitations within their existing infrastructure or technology for such a long period of time um but uh good old necessity comes along and suddenly you can start slicing through procurement processes and things that you've not been able to do for such a long period of time you know i mean we've seen uh, regulatory change acts like this type of catalyst with things like open banking and exposing apis before um, but never before have we seen such a, an unprecedented dose of necessity coming along, have we? Um, Benjamin, what, who have been doing this well? Because there's been, uh, I mean, like you say, lots of cases of people uh, doing the best that they can. But there really are uh, uh, quite a lot of organizations who are really, uh, like we say, sort of leaning into making these changes much more proactively. Yes, I think there's a really interesting difference between the the intention and the action. Um, as, as you said, David, lots of firms have been trying to do the right thing. In fact, almost every firm has been trying to do the right thing for customers and employees. Um, but some firms have been able to act faster. Um, and typically, that's been the digital firms. It's been smaller fintechs, um, some big firms. But often, it's the smaller firms that have been able to um, create 
new credit processes to um, approve credit decisions really quickly to start underwriting uh, new insurance policies to set up uh, new insurance policies. Sarah did some very interesting work looking at InsurTech and looking at um, half a dozen different examples of InsurTechs that are underwriting um, gig economy drivers or um, someone like Grab in Singapore that was offering enhanced cover for drivers who were driving health workers to and from hospitals because obviously they were slightly more at risk um, and Grab just created policies that covered them against that additional risk that they were taking. So it's often been the smaller firms and more digital firms that have responded and acted and created new things to help customers. Mm. No, it's, it's so it, it is so interesting to see what is coming out of this, where new needs from consumers are being met by uh, innovative firms who can create products that solve problems that get to market really quickly. I mean, Simon, uh, you know, digital now it doesn't look like an option; uh, it looks like a necessity, right? Yeah, being truly digital and like digital all the way through, not digitizing a paper process, but being actually digital. It's not a nice to have, it's stay in business. And I think we're seeing this interesting cycle of organizations who, um, I think it was Rich Crook on Blockchain Insider said to, um, you go to war with what you have, not what you need. And a lot of organizations have just rushed to all hands to the pump and try and solve customer problems. But now we're a few weeks into this, you know, we're at the almost at the end of the beginning, we're starting to see people look differently at digital tools and technologies. They looked at the digital banks who've been able to react quickly. They've looked at the Acorns and Robinhood who are actually seeing dramatic growth, if anything, in this in economy, which is which is incredible to see. There are some winners in this economy. And they're wondering, how do we get that stuff? And wait, maybe some of those fintech suppliers, maybe some different vendors, maybe some different approaches actually is not just like a nice innovation thing, but absolutely what we need, not only to stay in business and survive, but to thrive. And and it's interesting that to look at different segments of consumers or businesses that are in different places with this, because I mean, in the last couple of days, I've seen lots of rising of uh, different savings approaches because people are realizing they're not spending £600 a, a week or a month on traveling in and out of London and suddenly have, have got a bit more disposable income than they would have expected before. But at the same time, we're seeing small businesses enable to gain access to government funding quick enough and the dis- you know, literally we're seeing COBOL engineers being dragged out of retirement in America to to make sure that the systems can get updated to deal with the uh, the, the necessity and the stresses and the strains that are being placed upon them. So, I mean, this is, um, I mean, to say it's unprecedented times seems like uh, such a trife thing to say, given how much, you know, people have been saying that. But honestly, we we just haven't seen anything like this before. Okay, folks, we'll, we'll get into the, what this means for the next steps of this in terms of how it impacts us and what the inevitable recession looks like. But here's a quick message from our sponsors. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech Systems, a global leader in identity verification technology. With over 80 million users and trusted by the world's biggest banks, MyTech provides tomorrow's identity verification for today's uncertainty. See how MyTech Systems can help over at mytechsystems.com. That's mytech, M-I-T-E-K dot com. All right, on with the show. Okay, so if we move now maybe into what the medium term implications actually are, um, what comes after the first initial shock? Um, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, the R word is is inevitability at this stage, isn't it? So recession is a coming, isn't it, Benjamin? Yes, that's right. Um, it's interesting, people... 
have been talking about the recession that followed the global financial crisis as the Great Recession. I think people will stop using that term because we're now going to go into a very deep recession, quite possibly the first sort of global depression since the 1920s, you know, early 1930s. Um, so that's cheerful. Um, <laughs> and what that means for financial services companies is a, is a couple of things. It means you're going to see a big drop in revenue across most lines of business. Um, in banking, you're going to see net interest income getting uh, squeezed. Um, you're going to see fees and commissions dropping with economic activity. Yes, there'll be some short-term increase in sort of trading volatility, um, but that may fall away. And you're going to see drops in premium income as well. Um, and then as if that wasn't enough, you're also going to see huge increase in sort of cost pressures as you see things like loan losses piling up, uh, claims piling up for insurance companies, obviously, um, but also probably higher operational costs as firms scramble to put in place some of the digital solutions that we've been talking about. Um, so you're going to have dropping revenues, rising costs, and that doesn't square. So that then forces a whole sequence of other consequences. And as you say there, it's it's not just about these uh, the initial pieces, you know, those first domino pieces that really sort of start to kick off. But as we saw with two thousand and eight, it's it's everything that flows from that, isn't it? It's the uh, you know the 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 lack of trust within the system, it's the confidence within the system, it's the lack of money moving around that system, both from a, a personal and from a, a business perspective. Um, I, I mean, I. I'm scared to ask the question of when this is going to happen then, but Benjamin, when do you think this is uh, this essentially starts to kick off? It's starting to happen already. Um, it depends to some extent on how long governments can sustain uh, the various policies they put in place of trying to get funds to small businesses, trying to pay for workers to be furloughed and so on. Um, one of the things we haven't really talked about is is the great inequality here. You know, there's huge inequality of outcomes for individuals in countries, not only in terms of health, like who gets the virus and who doesn't, is just mostly sheer luck, um, how well you get treated in the health service and so on. But also, you know, which industries got hit, um, it's pretty random. Um, but then also for different governments, some governments can sustain more public borrowing for longer than others, right? Already countries like in Italy have become un come under pressure because they already had a lot of government borrowing. Um, clearly, as the virus spreads to developing economies, there's going to be a really hard hit there because those countries, those governments are just less wealthy. So this starts to hit the sooner the governments start to run out of funding. Um, so I think, you know, already banks, insurance companies, investment management firms are having to think hard about this is this is happening now from you know, mid-April onwards. Yeah. And and I guess, uh, I mean, to sort of circle back slightly on something we said uh, a second ago is, um, unlike the financial crisis, we we just don't, uh, from financial crisis from a, from 2008's perspective, the the first domino is toppling in an un, uh, un, uh, understood manner. Because essentially, as this first phase of everything that's happening from a pandemic perspective goes on longer and gets worse, uh, and the ripples of that then is felt from a global economy perspective continually, um, it's going to, you know, it, exacerbate and deepen that crisis that we see off the back of it so you know the uh the the slap when that domino hits the ground is uh is going to be again unprecedented in terms of the scale that we're seeing i mean a lot of the predictions that i've been reading are uh you know somewhere between eight and uh ten percent reduction from 
just purely from a UK perspective, but many of them that we've started to see uh, come out is saying, you know, you wouldn't be surprised if this was a 30% reduction uh, over the course of just 2020. So um, pretty humbling times, Sarah, hey? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, if, if you start looking at the bigger picture, you become truly terrified. And I think that's possibly why people are focused on the smaller picture for now, just to, to solve the immediate things that, that can be solved. Um, I think perhaps just one other point to mention there is I think uh, before this happened, we were seeing a definite increasing trend across people and governments to become more insular, to become more national, to withdraw into themselves. And if nothing else, what this has done has uh, made us... Uh, or should have made everybody realize that we're all the same, actually, and that everybody is in the same boat. And that I think now is the time that, well, not everybody's in the same boat, but everybody under, has faces the same, you know, uh, the same pandemic. And that now is the time, perhaps, for uh, governments and financial instruments and, and organizations to think more broadly and outside of their borders to not let that wave of nationalism kind of affect how we react to this. Because as we pointed out already, some some countries are in so much more trouble than others. Uh, other countries will likely follow them. So if we don't help help some out now, then you know it will be to go back to that Domino's metaphor even worse. Definitely. I mean, uh, I think we're in a situation where we've had, um, as you say, it, uh, borders have been, you know, borders have been and walls have been being put up, haven't they? But uh, suddenly we've got a British prime minister who was saved by a Portuguese nurse and a New Zealand nurse. So the world is looking a little bit differently in terms of uh, them damn foreigners. eh? So uh, let's uh, let's sort of see if that uh, that trend sort of gets continued. But I mean, Simon, I guess, you know, bringing this into, I guess, financial services really squarely, then, I mean, we, we've seen sort of the trailer for this movie to a certain degree with 2008. Um, how will banks go about surviving during this period? So I think it's hard to say because they can't see what the next 12 months looks like. Does it look like 2008 or does it look worse? And uh, you know, certainly in conversations I've had, you've seen a range of reactions. One is uh, you know, kind of like pause everything and then reevaluate. Another is uh, double down on digital. Another is all hands to the pump. And you're seeing some, some mix thereof. But actually, fundamentally, it comes down to strong balance sheets. Um, the fundamentals of a balance sheet are going to be absolutely critical. Um, I was listening to Ray Dalio, the famed hedge fund investor um, on speak on TED.com. And he was talking about a, a once in a generation debt cycle that you see roughly every 75 years that you can trace back for at least 700 years. And somehow uh, it, it seems to keep happening. And the nature of money itself gets reset. The nature of debt gets reset. Um, and the, the standard we use moves, the last time it happened, it moved from uh, gold standard to the US dollar standard which can be remarkably um, you know, traumatic for economies, but it also potentially does does get us there. But that's a 15-year journey. So that's a, it's a long old journey to get there. In the short term, the businesses that do well are the ones that are going to be attracting customer deposits. And so do you see a fight for those deposits? The ones that are able to re remain profitable? So the, the focus on cost uh, is not a case of I can just outsource it anymore. The co focus on cost is orders of magnitude improvements. Um, and actually, how, do you, how are organizations going to achieve those? Or who are the organizations in the market that already have those um, kind of impacts? So you know, it, on the retail side, a real push for deposits. And the uh, cap market side, you know, how are you going to shore up your liquidity? How are you going to exit non-core 
areas of your business. And I think all of that stuff kind of really starts to feed together into looking at every part of the bank's value chain and reevaluating it in a in a stress case scenario that you know that is exactly like 1929 and the early 30s. Um, and is there an internal Marshall plan for reinvesting back in the organization, much like the economies themselves might need? Or is there a new deal for an incumbent organization to be able to figure out how it takes the good bits and accelerates them and, and survives the harsh winter that's coming? All right. Well, let's 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 find the let's find the new good news thread here, shall we? Shall we move on to 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 what we think they will actually do? Because actually, I, I think a, a big part of this, uh, you know, from the from these ashes comes uh, comes hope to a certain degree. I mean, the the reinvention that organisations can do next, due to this big old shot of necessity, as we were sort of talking about earlier on, um, could be really really significant. I mean, Benjamin, do you see many sort of taking up that mantle of this as a uh, a great narrative, a great excuse to do the things that they know that they should have been doing for, for quite a long period of time already. Yes, you can see that a little bit, that there, if there is a silver lining here at all for people in sort of digital financial services, it's that some of the messages that people have been talking about for years are finally starting to get through because people are suddenly suddenly understanding Ah, now I see what you mean when you said digital was critical. Um, so yes, I think this is going to give a lot of impetus to the people who've been talking about digital and talking about the need for truly digital processes. Uh, it's going to give a huge impetus to the firms that have built truly digital processes because, you know, t- to Simon's point earlier, you know, so a lot of this technology already exists. It's already out there. There are startups um, and some established firms that have built some of this stuff and suddenly... Uh, other companies need that. They need to shift their customers and their operations off the old siloed legacy processes that are costing them a lot of money to run and now proving unable to react fast enough. So yes, I think there's a huge silver lining here um, of digital technology offers some answers. You know, Imagine if this pandemic had hit in the 1980s or the 1970s, people wouldn't have been able to work from home. So it's already better than it might have been awful though it is. Um, but digital does indeed offer a lot of hope for ways forward and ways out of this. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. I think it's it's one of those ones that um, now that people have been forced into doing some things and that the world hasn't ended, we've seen, like as you say, you know, people advance their remote working policies uh, you know, more in the last eight weeks than eight years before that. So, uh, and actually the world hasn't ended, you know, people who have continued, people have not run off with all their data and there's not been, you know, massive breaches in the the way in which people kind of predicted those things to happen. So, I mean, that definitely with examples like remote working or Sarah, the, the partnerships that have been set up, as you say, between some smaller organizations and bigger organizations to fill operational or technological gaps, you know, this is going to give a lot of confidence to people that actually this can be the catalyst for real change. Absolutely, it can be. Um, I think, you know, something else that's important uh, that I would hope that has happened recently um, is that importance of listening to your customers and what your customers actually need. Because um, I think we in our industry have known for a while that a lot of financial services products are not really fit for purpose for a lot of people. Um, They, you know, they, they don't, this one size fits no one is the thing I go back to over and over again. Um, and, you know, that has become, I would say, even more apparent, um, you know, as we've seen kind of this pandemic progress. Um, and so 
at the same time, um, the, the organizations that are coming out of this, you know, reputationally very well thus far are those that are listening to their customers um, and reacting as they can. So there's the point about being able to react quickly and about being able to do things, you know, on, on a quick basis, whether that's getting new technology or new products and services up there. But I think there's a whole other part to this, which some of the larger organizations have done well, even if their infrastructure is, is struggling, which is listening to their customers saying, we hear you, we understand what the problems are. This is what we're trying to do to help you. You know, if, if that comes with a caveat of please bear with us, then then it comes with a caveat. But the point is they're going, oh, oh, okay, those are the people we actually should be listening to here. Um, and I think, you know, that's only going to continue because the products that we had before the pandemic weren't fit for purpose then. They certainly aren't fit for purpose now. Um, you know, the, 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 the idea of some of these mortgages and loans, um, certainly the ways in which they're accessed, if nothing else, but kind of the ways in which they work, the way the interest is calculated, the way that credit scoring works, you know, that wasn't fit for purpose beforehand. It's definitely not fit for purpose now. Um, you know, current accounts, banking, payments, all those things will need to change in line with new circumstances. And my hope is that the larger organizations have realized the best way to make sure that those products and services change in line with customers' change circumstances is to listen to their customers. And then obviously the advantage of that is that they develop products services their customers want and they stay with x bank rather than going off and finding a new bank but i think that's another key piece here is this kind of i hope there's a light bulb moment of okay what we've got doesn't work how do we make it better let's ask the people who might actually know or at least they know what they want and we can help them get it to them yeah well they they can usually pretty well articulate what their problems are customers can't they whether they can articulate the solutions is another matter but uh, definitely in this time then there are very clear issues that are coming out that are not being solved by uh, traditional financial services products but i mean simon look they're they're in this bit of a a vice here on one hand you've got uh, crippling operational costs you've got margins being squeezed and on the other hand, you've got uh, the need to deliver change and to get things to to market. I mean, the the traditional approach to this would would really be to to digitize the processes that you've got in order to be in a situation where you solve that problem. But clearly, that doesn't solve the the left hand part of that equation when it comes to actually dramatically reducing your operating cost to to really deal with these these times in the way that they need to. Because you know this isn't just individuals and uh, businesses that are facing operational costs. Banks have ops costs that are just getting out of control, don't they? Well, we've seen it year after year that banks announce they spend billions on digital, but every year their tech cost increases. So their capex is increasing their opex. It's not decreasing it. And that's fundamentally an equation that doesn't work in this economy. So you need something whereby add 10% of your budget on capex, increasing your opex by 3% is not sustainable in this model. You need something else. And I wonder, do they have the the talent and the skills that are able to do things in, in a slightly different way. Absolutely, there's a bunch of bright people that really do want to listen to customers in those organizations. But do they have the ways of working where those people can be autonomous and do things in a different way? Do they have the operating model really figured out? And then from a tech side, are they, like if your mainframe has 3 million lines of code, I don't care how great of a software engineer you are, that's a hard task to figure out. If, like, if I pull out this Lego brick, does the whole Jenga thing fall down? Like three million lines of code is a giant operating risk, and the whole world is dealing with tech debt and and ha- paying it in a very very big way. And unfortunately, that's having real consequences not just for businesses but for their customers. And tech debt, it's it's really now time to deal with it. But I think that the silver lining for me is it's been proven. 
you can do things truly digitally. And it can often be faster and cheaper than trying to deal with the 3 million lines of code and spending billions of billions of pounds. Now, you can't switch off the revenue oxygen that is coming in through the door of the existing systems. But what's that investment plan look like to get to being a truly digital business? I think that's a a really interesting question that I hope a lot of organizations are asking themselves. Okay, so uh, you, you had it here first, folks. We're, we're we're sort of predicting the death of digitization, which is uh, not a, not a bad thing, I think, at this stage. But uh, I mean, Benjamin, what what does that truly digital future look like then? If this is what we we believe actually is the 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 sort of salvation for many of these organisations to solve both sides of that equation when it comes to what they need to do for their consumers, but also what they fundamentally need to do for themselves. Um, what does being truly digital really look like? I think I think first of all it's a it's a change of mindset. Um, it's about thinking differently to so to what Simon was saying. It's about from going from digitizing the analog paper processes to trying to build completely new born digital capabilities that are simply more efficient. It's about changing your mindset from selling the kind of commodity. Uh, one-size-fits-no-one products that Sarah was just talking about to delivering intelligent services that are more suited to the needs of individual customers so that you can customize and tailor your products to different customers' needs. And it's about changing how you how you change, going from big bang waterfall projects to agile, iterative change. So you've got to go through that change in mindset. Then you've got to tackle the, the the technical debt, as, as Simon was saying, and really think about how do we break down the the sort of uh, legacy monoliths and the systems that we've got? How do we create a much more modular architecture within our business? How do we gradually create APIs um, throughout our technology infrastructure so that we can do two things? Firstly, we can start bringing in new capabilities from third parties who can do things more cheaply and more efficiently than we can. And secondly, where we're world-class at something, how can we export that capability to other firms? So as you start creating that more modular technical architecture, you can then start to say, hey, we can partner here. We can partner with other firms that can do stuff better than we can, and we can lend our world-class capabilities to other people and drive more stuff, more volume through our highly efficient factory. So that then starts to reshape the whole way the industry is structured because all of a sudden you get companies partnering in ecosystems, companies coming together to deliver better services to customers, um, and you start to get a reorganization. And that's already been happening. Uh, you can already see some of the sort of platform businesses, particularly some of the sort of marketplace type businesses, firms like Zero and Intuit, QuickBooks and so on, starting to form ecosystems. That starts to accelerate a lot. I think what's really interesting here is you go back to the point Simon was making earlier about cash and who's got cash here. The digital giants have got cash. Some of those big Chinese firms, someone like Ping An, you know, the largest insurance company in the world. Um, those sorts of firms that get digital and they've got cash, they're going to be very, very interesting to watch over the next few months to see what they do because they've got the opportunity to pick up assets that other firms are trying to get rid of um, and they've got the ability to come in and help fix uh, challenges for established firms yeah i mean i, I can completely agree with that i think as you said at the top of that uh i mean this isn't really just a, a rational decision that many of these organizations are making uh it becomes an emotional one uh it's letting go almost indefinitely of the way in which you've gone about doing business for the last 
you know multiple decades uh, in order to acclimatize yourself to the the new environment that actually everybody operates in i mean it's going to be it's going to be so fascinating to see how many of those organizations can sort of take that feeling from that first meeting that they had when they were discussing moving everybody to working from home and the positivity and can do mentality to make that happen because if they didn't their business stopped being in business um, I think there, to your point, there are going to be many opportunities or many occasions where people are going to face a, a very similar crisis, albeit uh, they have a little bit more uh, optionality to opt out at that stage, aren't they? So, I mean, Sarah, do you think that people, obviously, I mean, to your point, this this isn't just a listen to consumers more and do what they say, because if it was that easy, then people would have been doing it, uh, uh, you know, for, for many times before this. There's been something in the way, hasn't there? There's been something sort of inhibiting their ability to to kind of actually make these things happen. So do you think those organizations are going to be able to sort of get out of their way to make these things happen? I mean, I think firstly, um, I think it does come down in some organizations to just actually to not even that getting that first principle to listening to their customers. I think there have been cultural barriers to that. You know, so if it was as easy as listening to your customers, I don't think it is as easy as listening to your customers. And a lot of those large organizations who very much have this kind of idea of no, 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 we know right, we know what's best for you, and we've certainly come across those, you know, occasionally in our work. You know, yeah, we see what you're telling us that our customers want, but we're going to do this anyway because they don't actually know better. Um, so I think that the important point there, I think, is is, is cultural, is what I'm trying to say. So getting out of their own way, a lot of it is, as we've said, that kind of that, that kind of cultural mindset. Um, we've kind of already covered it here earlier, but I think technology is easy. I think culture is hard. So I think you can go and buy the best technology in the world um, and you can piece it all together beautifully and you can hire all the best people who are coming out of MIT and Oxford and all the best data engineers and analysts in the world. But if you haven't thought about the way in which you're doing it and more importantly, the imperative of the why you're doing it, then you are going to keep tripping over your own feet. So in terms of you know getting out of your own way, I think a lot of it is taking it right back to the beginning, stripping everything back, uh, back to the beginning of how every little process is done. And if you find the right kind of set of principles for how processes should be developed, then you can disseminate those. Um, and that will make it a lot easier for you to spread this throughout an organization rather than doing it piecemeal and one thing at a time. I think, as you said, you know, you really have to hope that this is like a big bang moment. Um, somebody described it the other day as being like, you know, it's like the dinosaurs, the meteorite hits and you get all these exciting new species that come afterwards. Um, and we've kind of already seen that when it comes to like the the small businesses, you know, pubs that have suddenly become takeaways, uh, coffee shops that have suddenly become grocers. Uh, you know, let's have some of that in banking, please. Let's have some new species. You know, let, let's see people think, right, let's pivot. Let's turn it this way and do that instead. I'm I'm game. Yeah, I mean, arguably, I mean, from the 2008 crisis, we saw, uh, you know, smaller, more agile players come along. You know, fintech was born. Um, but I think, given the scale of the change that we're seeing here, uh, you know, this is this is full reset time, isn't it? Like you say, the the environment is not just altering; it's it's completely changing. So, I mean, to touch on your point around around culture, there, I mean, it's always been the major inhibitor within organizations because. Um, you know, unlike a, a shiny technology system from IBM, culture you can't buy. Uh, you have to mean it every day. You have to put in the work to make those things happen. Um, and having a culture isn't just you believing it. It's instilling that belief in everybody within your organization. Uh, and that is hard. And uh, inevitably, unfortunately, big organizations uh, 
don't like hard things. Um, Simon, this is um, this is probably going to be a, a difficult one to to um, to throw at, at your feet because um, there's a bit of a, a kind of a, a a big a big broad statement here. But the implications for banks in this is is really significant. You know, this isn't just a um, you know here's a three step program and all of this stuff is fixed. Like there is major ramifications for how they act on a day to day basis, isn't there? Yeah, and and I think the the previous points had actually started to hint at, at those implications quite in a big way. There's no one answer to that question, um, but I think the first thing, as Sarah said, it is that big dose of humility, which is um, in this new market we're all learning. Um, the one thing that does seem to be evidenceable in this market is look at the share price of Netflix, look at the share price of Shopify, look at the share price of truly digital businesses, and look at the share price of banks. And actually, you can probably draw some conclusions from that, that being truly digital is helpful. Maybe it's it's you know it's something else, but there's a lot of rationalizing that goes on at the at the most senior levels in banks. Oh, it's the market. Oh, it's it's unprecedented times. But actually, we're in a lot more control than we think we are. And I think the the sort of facing up to that moment is going to be really really key. And the ones that are willing to be brave and do that, and the ones that are willing to uh, really believe in doing something quite radical, because I do think radical solutions will be required here, will be the ones that come out of this not only um, surviving, but potentially thriving as well. And there's an opportunity to do that. Um, And as Benjamin said, look, the big techs are really well capitalized, are really good at digital. And if your share price is tanking, but you have a banking license, you're very valuable to big tech right now. You're very valuable with that license. What are you great at? You have a license. You understand compliance. You spend a lot of money keeping up with compliance all year, every year. You're plumbed into all of these um, kind of payments networks. Very few other organizations have that outside of financial services. How do you use that asset? How do you understand customers better? And how do you build a culture that can execute on that opportunity? So let's hope they can do it. And and what do you say? I mean, collectively, guys, there are going to be people who uh, are naysayers to this. Um, you know, inevitably, there are going to be people in in big banks potentially listening to this right now, saying, "Do you know what? We'll sit tight. We'll keep doing what we do. The world will go back to normal, and actually, everything will go back to the way that it was." Um, what do you guys say to, to to them? Because I think many people will will try and just go back to what they did before and try to go back to uh, the ways things were back in the good old days. Um, Benjamin, what what do you think? Do you think the the life will return back to normal, or is this a is this a reset that will will uh, change to a, a new normal? I've hated the expression "the new normal" for years because people kept using it so inappropriately. Finally. I think it is appropriate. I think the way that human, the way that we live will change. Um, it depends on whether there's a vaccine or not, but I don't think life will return to normal anytime soon. I think the point for financial services companies is you don't have to survive this. You know, remember Wachovia, remember Washington Mutual, remember IndyMac Bank, you know, the difference, or Lehman Brothers, the difference now from 2008 is in 2008, the losses already happened. That money had already gone on building houses that nobody was going to buy. This time their losses are coming. Um, But financial services firms won't necessarily survive this. Their firms will disappear. Brands will disappear. They will get you know, banks aren't allowed to fail, so you get acquired by someone else, but that doesn't mean there's not a huge amount of pain. So if you're a leader of a bank, are you going to lead your organization through this, 
or are you going to watch it fail? Are you going to take the actions to help your firm thrive and survive? Or are you just going to sit there? You know, you asked the question earlier, David, why hasn't this been done already? It hasn't been done already in some firms because people didn't want to rock the boat because why rock the boat when the profits were coming in? Well, now the boat is sinking. So are you going to let the boat sink or are you going to stop it from sinking? And that's the question facing senior executives now. Really agree with that. Sarah, what do you think? Is this, uh, is this all going to get swept under the uh, the sort of, uh, an, 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 like we're, go- we're doing very well with an- analogies during this one, but under the under the mat or is it uh, going to be something that uh, is too big to hide? Well, I'm not sure I can follow anything with Benjamin's eloquence on that. Um, I will say that when he listed those brands, he said, does anybody remember? And I was like, nope, nope, nope. When he got to Lehman Brothers, oh yeah, heard of that one. Um, so, you know, that really, that really makes the point. I 100% agree. This is completely about survival, guys. This isn't about you know getting a few more customers or making a few more pennies or saving a few more pennies. It's it's life or death, and that goes for companies of all size. I think the interesting thing, um, what's going to be really interesting to see is how different countries and different regions react and the ways in which they do it. Because I've spoken to, to a lot of people over the last few weeks, and it really depends on where you are in the world as to how you see this. I've spoken to people who genuinely when you think it's all going to go back to normal after the summer because where they are in the world has really not been affected. They don't really understand what all the fuss is about. Um, then you've got people who are in New York who are going, are you insane? Um, and I think what, you know, whether you whether you understand that point about survival will be how well that message comes through to you. And I think a large part of that has got to be coming from the top, whether that's regulators or governments or both or a combination. Um, I think, you know, you can't just sit there and go, well, we've not been badly affected, so we- we'll be fine. Because other people will move faster than you, and then they will they will take you over. They will swallow you up. It doesn't matter that you're in Germany and they're in Italy. They will come for you. Absolutely. Um, Simon, It's uh, there's, there's no longer a, a shall we wait and see, is there? I think it feels like it's a get on and get this done, isn't it? Completely. Look, consumers will remember this period of time and the new products and services they used that they worked. And they'll remember who wasn't there for them. Banks talk a lot about trust. uh, And I'm sure every bank is you know, every person in every department that is, all of those humans are trying to do the right things for their customers. But if you can't do the right thing for your customer, then are you going to lose trust of the customers? And if you've lost that, are you still a bank? Agree. I mean, as as Benjamin said, uh, and from my perspective, I mean, uh, people don't really notice evolution. You know, it happens pretty slowly. It happens kind of very t- relatively sort of slowly in that period. People notice revolution. Uh, it happens very violently. There are a lot of kind of deaths usually involved in these things. Um, but the thing about evolution is it's not for everybody, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, as we saw with dinosaurs or various different ele- elements or animals all the way through the, the time, then uh, evolution has a... F- funny way of just actually finding the people who really adapt to the change quick enough and the environment has changed more than ever before so uh it's going to be really really interesting times but um one thing's for sure then uh truly digital is is definitely the future ahead all right guys that's probably all we have for today uh thank you so much for everybody for joining us where can people find out more about you benjamin so uh you can find out more about me on linkedin or on 11fs's website uh sarah uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Um, you can also find more of the content that the research team have been producing on that website we mentioned earlier. So that's info.11fs.com forward slash COVID-19. You can find the full report there. You can find some bite-sized pieces the rest of the team have been doing. I've done some of them. By no means am I the only person who's contributed to that. And also any of our other media content that, that's related to, to the pandemic. Very good. Uh, Simon? 
Uh, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or email me directly, simon at 11fs.com. As for me, you can find me over on Twitter and LinkedIn just at David Breer, where I'll be hosting a daily breakfast show, actually. Uh, we're doing a lot to try and get everybody uh, in as good a mindset as we can be over this period. I mean, the environment's looking different, and uh, a lot of us are looking different as well. There's like beard cuts and haircuts and all different types of things that need to be need done at this stage. Um, but feel free to join us. It's uh, 8.30 every morning over on LinkedIn. Okay, guys, uh, thanks for listening. If you've liked what you've heard, uh, subscribe to the podcast and do not forget to leave us one of those reviews. It really, really helps people find what we're doing. Speaking of which, if you know somebody else who loves fintech who isn't loving fintech insider or listening to fintech insider, I mean, what more can they possibly be doing at this time? There's loads of back catalog, loads of interesting topics. Um, tag a friend, let them know. If you've any suggestions or feedback, find us over on social media or just hit us on podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks very much, everybody. Stay safe.